further notice, this is where it will be at 7.30 every uh, Friday night. Okay, let's pray. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we ask you for living understanding of this very important passage that's prophetic passage for this hour of history. We ask you in the name of Jesus to mark our hearts, to pull us into this on a regular basis, the truth of this passage in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, paragraph A, we all know Philippians 1. We pray it all the time down in the prayer room. Ephesians 1, Philippians 1, Ephesians 3. This was, this was really, I'm enjoying this because our community is so familiar with these passages. So Paul prays for believers to abound in love. And I'm going to identify three specific ways that we are to pray to abound in love. We'll get there in a few minutes. And they're not to yield to compromise in their quest to abound in love, to resist compromise, to be sincere, and to not cause offense. And that means us causing offense by our action in the lives of others. To go very alert and attentive to not create offense. Now, that, that doesn't mean we uh, compromise the Word of God because when the Word of God creates the offense, that's one thing. But Paul is saying we don't, we want to be very alert and sensitive not to say and do things that injure people. Again, if it's obedience to the Word of God, that's a separate category because a lot of folks don't like the Word of God and they get offended by it. Well, let's read the prayer. This I pray, that your love would abound. He's praying for the whole church at Philippi. That your love would abound still more and more. We're grateful for whatever the Lord's given us by the Spirit in our lives, but we want more and more. No matter how deep we get in the love of God, we want more and more. Then he gives us two Qualifiers. He goes, you're going to grow in love. You're going to abound in love by knowledge. And you're going to do it by discernment. Those two things we'll look at in a few moments. And here's the results of it. So that you would be sincere. In other words, resisting all compromise. And you would be without offense. You wouldn't do things that injure people's hearts and lives and reputations and just, just their lives in general, by our actions and our words and those kinds of things. And you're going to stay with this until the day of Christ, until you meet the Lord. Now, the day of Christ is the second coming, but if you go to the Lord before he comes to you, that's the day of Christ for you. In other words, sustain this to the end of your life. This isn't a short-term seasonal emphasis of the Holy Spirit. This is a long-term, sustained lifestyle. And the results are that we're filled with the fruits of righteousness. And this is gonna happen because of what Jesus did and by interacting with Jesus. Not just by what he did on the cross, but this comes by Jesus, interacting with him called abiding in him. It's that ongoing communication that we have with him. And the net result is 
The Father is glorified in this age when others look at lives that embrace this in a sustained way, in a deep and sustained way. The Father is deeply glorified by this because it's so counterintuitive for us to live this way. It's so normal for us to just go the way of just the natural way. This is very against the current of our natural mindset and our, our natural way we think and process information. It's very counterculture. Now, paragraph B, this prayer is very important. Well, all the apostolic prayers are very important. But I want to bring some special attention to this one because it has prophetic significance in light of John 17, which is that which Jesus prayed John 17 that his family would be one, even as him and the Father are one. Now that's happened maybe one percent of the body of Christ, nearly or a little less than that through history. So this John 17 reality is an end time reality. The closer we get to the coming of the Lord, the more John 17 is going to come into open fulfillment that's obvious to see. And in order to walk in that John 17 family maturity, we have to walk in this Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. We've got to contend for this in our life and in the lives of the people we love and for the body of Christ. Jesus in John 17 said there's going to be a mature family, and the mature family reality is going to actually lead to the great harvest. When a billion unbelievers see the family transformed in this way, not entirely transformed, it's going to grab the attention of the unbelieving nations in a way, because this is actually the greatest miracle. This is greater than opening a natural blind eye. It's, it's the transformation of the human heart in the most intense way to walk in this. That's why it's happened so little over church history. It's the great transformative miracle that's going to happen on a global level at the end of the age. But at the very time that this is happening, as we get closer to the Lord's return, Satan, this is an end time reality as well, is fueling a betrayal culture in the church by stirring up accusations of believers against believers. So two things are happening simultaneously in an increasing fashion, the closer we get to the coming of the Lord. There's millions entering into this family mature love, the, the Philippians 1-9 reality. Millions are moving in that direction and the Spirit's helping them. But they are, I mean, they are engaging their heart in a serious way in this. This doesn't happen automatic. This happens because the Spirit moves, but we engage Him. And while that trajectory is happening of a deeper family love of millions of believers, and that trajectory, that's already beginning. We're seeing just the beginning stirrings of it in the last few years across the nations. But Satan says, not so fast. I'm going to create a betrayal culture among former friends and loved ones. It says here in Matthew chapter 24, many will betray one another. Strangers don't betray each other. This isn't a stranger on social media uh, uh, criticizing you or telling lies about you or putting you down. That, a stranger, you think, oh, what a, that's not great. 
Why do they say that? But betrayal is a close friendship, a relationship. And the betrayal is going to increase because there's going to be a great falling away at the end of the age. So many believers are going to get offended and enter into this betrayal against each other. At the same time, many believers are going to grow deep in the John 17 love, and they're going to be used to bring in the great harvest. So people say, is there going to be a great harvest, the billion-soul harvest, which is kind of a popular way to say it. That's not a, a specific, accurate number. I think it's more than a billion. Is it the billion-soul harvest or the great falling away? And both of them are happening simultaneously in the years leading to the coming of the Lord. The family dynamics are maturing, and the betrayal culture is increasing as we get closer to the Lord. And John, and this Revel, I mean, this Philippians one nine is right in the center of that tension. It's a very prophetic passage. I mean, it's been relevant for two thousand years, but it is really going to be emphasized by the Spirit the closer we get to the Lord's return. Paragraph C. Well, Paul says, I pray, the prayer is that love would abound. Now I'm going to give three ways that we pray for love to abound. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to cause our revelation of God's love for us to abound. And the body of Christ, that, that's going to be the great transformative kind of catalytic revelation when we see how God feels about us, when that revelation of God's love for us, when it abounds in us, when it gets more emphasized, that abounding revelation, growing and understanding how he feels about us. But it doesn't stop there. The next thing is that we want to abound in our love for Jesus. Not just understanding his love for us, but our love for him. It doesn't stop there. There is an overflow we pray that our love would abound for one another and the lost. Now, we want to grow in all three of those realities simultaneously. It's not like you grow in one, stage one, then stage two. But when we abound in our understanding, our understanding of God's love for us increases, it fuels the other two. It stirs them up and empowers us. But again, we want to lock into growing in all three of those areas simultaneously. Romans 5, 5, the Holy Spirit is postured to pour love into the human heart. The revelation of God's love, the impartation of love back to God, and pour out the overflow of that love to people, to weak and broken people. The Holy Spirit lives in us. He says, my task is to pour it out in you, but I'm going to do it as you engage with me. As you ask me and make regular decisions to engage in this, I'm going to pour it out more, meaning in your heart. You're going to understand the love of God more. You're going to have a greater impartation of love for Jesus, and it's going to overflow to people. It's going to be incremental little process, little by little, step by step. And sometimes in my life, it's three steps forward, two steps back, three steps forward. But over the months and years, you're steadily going forward. Now, I'm not putting that on you that you're going to go two steps back. That's just, uh, just my story, okay? Let's look at paragraph two. This We're going to abound in our love for Jesus, an impartation of love for Jesus. This is one of my 
life verses. You get to have a couple life verses. John 17, 26. I mean, this is remarkable. This is Jesus praying, Father, the love with which you love me, your love for me, put it in him. Impart it to him. That we're going to love Jesus like the Father loves Jesus? Like, really? If anybody besides Jesus said that, I'm not sure I could fully engage in it. I'd go, like the Father loves him? And Jesus says, yes. That's where this thing's going. So, I mean, I want to abound in my revelation of God's love for me. I mean, that's where, that's the catalytic that's the fueling of the other two dimensions, but I really want to grow. I want the impartation. I want to abound in my love for Jesus and then for one another. Paragraph D, again, the phrase still more and more. It's not like we're beginning today. We don't despise our growth in love, our growth in the revelation of God's love, our love for Jesus we don't despise the small measure of it from yesterday, but rather we stop and say thank you. Thank you, Lord. It matters. We haven't grown as much as we wished we would have, but we have grown in it. So we say thank you. We don't despise what we have today while we're reaching for more tomorrow. We don't choose between the two. It's thank you, but give me more. How much more? Still more and more. How much more? Still more and more. I think forever. That will be echoing through our being still more and more, still more and more. Top of page two. Well, there's two very important ways that we grow, that we abound in love in those three ways. The revelation of love, we abound in love for God, and we abound in love for people. Paul says, I pray that we abound in love in knowledge. Or another way to say it is through receiving knowledge. We abound in love through receiving knowledge. Knowledge of what? Well, knowledge of God's heart. Well, knowledge of the truth, that's the same. The knowledge of God's personality. I'm saying the same thing kind of different ways. The knowledge of the finished work of the cross. What really happened not just for us, but for the people around us that are weak and broken that bug us. The work of the cross really did something for them that we need to see. Knowledge of Jesus' leadership. And it's not just that he leads us in goodness. That his, he relates to us and leads us through this paradigm of grace that most of us, myself included, we're not very familiar with with his leadership, what, how he really talks about us and thinks about us. So when I talk about his leadership, the way he talks about us to the Father, the way he talks and thinks and prays about us is remarkably positive. We think, well, I mean, he's Jesus, of course. And, but Paul is saying, I want you to grow in knowledge of this. I want you to grasp this more. I want you to have knowledge of how God views people, how he views you. Well, Jesus said in John 8, 32, very well-known verse, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will liberate our hearts. If we know the truth. If we have knowledge, 
it liberates our heart. I mean, the knowledge of God, these, this type of knowledge. But it's not just sterile information. It's knowledge as we're interacting with the Lord. It liberates our hearts. It sets us free, John 8, 32. Paul said the same thing in a different way. He said, you'll be transformed by renewing your mind, changing the way you think. Your emotions will be transformed when you change the way you think. So my point being, this little phrase that Paul says, abound in love in knowledge or through growing in knowledge is a very significant phrase. It's very significant. It takes time to cultivate that knowledge is the point. We can get a little bit of this knowledge on the run, but we won't grow deep in this knowledge just kind of on the run. We gotta take time to really invest in it, but the net result is our, we abound in love. We grow in, we abound in the revelation of God's love for us. We abound in greater love for Jesus. We abound in, abound in greater love for people. It's really worth the effort. It takes time though. Paragraph F, Paul says, well, he goes, I pray I, that you abound in love, in knowledge, but it's gonna take discernment as well. You've gotta have knowledge of God's heart and Jesus' leadership, but it's gonna take discernment. Spiritual understanding is what, how other uh, Bible translations say it. Many say discernment, others say growing in spiritual understanding. Meaning, this is really big. I'm gonna abound in love towards you in your weakness and brokenness and those irritating things you do that bug people around you, all of us, <laughs> we're humans. We're gonna abound in love when we discern who that person is and how God views them. Again, it's very counterintuitive to it. It's opposite. We go like, I don't know, you know? You, you do this and you do that. And the Lord says, that's not my story for them. You need discernment of how I see them. This is not a small point. This is a very, very big point. You need to discern not just how I view them, my truths. You, gotta, you need to discern how excellent my truths are. Like today, there's cultural wars against the sanctity of life and the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of sex. There's cultural wars against the authority of the word of God, against the one way of salvation through Jesus, against cultural wars, against his judgments, accusing them as being contradiction to love. And the Lord says, you need spiritual discernment. You need knowledge of my heart, but you need to discern the truth of these things. Because there's a lot of confusion in the culture on these. And our own natural mindset is to see the person that doesn't treat us right, or they put us down, or they ignore us, or they block our goals, or any number of things. And like, yeah, I don't really like them anyway. And the Lord says, no, you're going to abound in love through the knowledge of my heart, but having spiritual discernment of how I view them and having spiritual discernment on those different truths that they're at the very heart of the cultural wars right now that are increasing according to Psalms 2. We've got to love God. We've got to love on God's terms. Jesus is the only man qualified to define what love is. There's so many definitions of love in the culture. And 10 years from now, there'll be many more. And they're convincing. 
convincing definitions, but they're not biblical. Matter of fact, they're, they're in opposition to Jesus' definition. It takes spiritual discernment because the issues can be complex and crafty and hidden and subtle and layered and like, what? And the Paul says, you, know, you have to have knowledge of my heart and the cross and how I view things, but you need spiritual discernment as well, which is similar to having knowledge. Those are very similar, but Paul emphasized those two different facets. Paragraph G. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna say this over and over, and some of this stuff on the notes I won't cover. I've said it the last number of months and years over and over and over. And so, but this is more than academic information. The most challenging thing is to discern, is to abound in love. I mean, God loves us. Abound in knowledge of how God loves us. I like that one. Abound in impartation of love for Jesus. I like that. But abounding in love for people, again, as long as they're far away, or as long as they like the same things you like and they like you, it's pretty easy. It goes pretty good if they like you and like the things you like. But when they're in the family of God and they don't really like you and they don't agree with you and they don't like what you like, they don't like your music, they don't like your views, they don't like how you live, they have criticism, that's when it gets challenging. And so this having discernment of how God views them is critical to the family of God entering into John 17, mature love. It, it's a supernatural. It's, you know, I remember, I've heard this over the years. You know, I've been a pastor 45 years now, coming right up to it in a few months. And uh, oh, how many hundreds of times have I heard this? And a couple times I was kind of a little bit smarter like, and, but I quit doing that. And uh, the early days they would come and say, we want to join your church because my church isn't loving. I said, do you realize you just said your church isn't walking in the supernatural glory of God, the highest level all the time? They're not loving. Of course they're not loving. They're broken human beings. What are you talking about? They go, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then I quit saying that. But not loving. Loving is the apex of the supernatural work of God that's contrary to how we think. Now, again, if they like us and like what we like, we think of love as pretty easy, except for those few moments here and there where we have run-ins. Isn't that a problem to like people that like you? That's not the issue. Jesus said even unbelievers like people that like them and like people that agree with them and like people that enjoy the same recreation and music and sports and, and stuff. That's, that's no problem. That's natural. It's liking people who don't like you or don't agree with you that are in the family of God. This is a radical, radical reality. So they would say, you know, they don't really love. Of course, <laughs> this is the apex of the glory of God. In my early days, I pointed it out. It always backfired, so I just shut up and said, oh, just be quiet, Mike. Then the next one you hear, which is almost is, not helpful is that one. How's that? That's a good word. Not as helpful as that one. It's this idea, oh man, in the world, they, I mean, when you get in the church, that's when it gets tough. I got news for you. The world is filled with people who don't walk in God's love. This idea that in the church is when it's really tough. No, in the church, you just have higher expectations. And you get closer and you put your guard down quicker. 
The church is far more loving than the unbelieving world when you run into people who don't like you and don't like what you like. So I encourage people to drop the, the kind of the rhetoric and see growing in love as a supernatural, unique, not unique, but rare, something that's gonna take all of our strength to throw our life into, and we're not gonna presume it's just gonna happen overnight and it's gonna be easy and it's gonna be everywhere, but rather opposite. We're gonna be awestruck when it emerges. And go, wow, it's really happening. I mean, we want it to grow more. Instead of criticizing the measure of it, we're gonna be grateful for it is the point I'm getting at. Well, we're equipped to abound in love by, I'm saying again, paragraph G, but I'm just repeating myself. By growing in knowledge of God's heart and growing in discernment at how God sees people and growing in discernment of how different truths in the cultural wars as well. Oh, these are just two verses I just cannot say enough times. I've, I've preached on these two passages so many times over the last 40 plus years. And the reason I'm telling you that because I want you to do that in the next 40 plus years if, we're still, if it's still going on like this. I want you to look at these passages and make them top of your list passages. King David says, God delivered me because he likes me. Okay, that's, that's a big statement right there. I just couldn't skip verse 19. I really want to talk about verse 35, but David had just been in a time of compromise, and he repented. And they said, David, why did God deliver you? He's really in a jam. He goes, because he likes me. And the guy goes, he likes you? Or you were doing some not great stuff here at Ziklag in 1 Samuel 27. David said, well, he likes me. That's why he delivered me. What a great Revelation, but that's not the real one I want to put. I just can't do Psalm 18 without touching verse 19. It's verse 35. And he's praying. He goes, Lord, your gentleness will make me great. Not only your gentle treatment of me gives me a new beginning day after day. Not only does your gentleness of the way you treat me give me a new beginning, but your gentleness, the way you treat me, now I am treating others through that lens, and that's what constituted David's greatness. He viewed people through that lens in a very unique way. Not very many people in his day did that. Beloved, you want to be great? Begin to see people through the lens of God's gentleness and his gentleness towards you, and you will be gentle towards them even though they might not like you or agree with you. Yeah, it will change your perspective. And that is one of the essence of David's greatness. He treated people. Now he viewed people. He interpreted them through the lens of God's gentleness because he received it himself. And then the other passage I love to quote is Micah 7, which is an end-time passage, by the way. Micah 7 is about the generation the Lord returns in context. God is going to reveal himself as delighting in mercy. He doesn't want uh, the end time church and the John 17 maturity. We're not going to be tolerating giving mercy to people like, well, God gave me mercy. I'll just hold my breath and give it to you. Just hope you don't do what you just did again. I hope you don't get in my space again. I'm going to give you mercy. Lord says, no, no, I actually delight in it. I love giving them mercy, and I'm going to cause you to delight in it, not just to endure doing it. Paragraph H, 
Paul prayed. He says, well, you're going to abound in love, in knowledge with all discernment. And here's a takeaway. There's two statements that are when, when Paul says that. That you would approve things that are excellent and that you would be sincere and without offense. He has two phrases in, two sen- phrases in a row that he puts so that the outcome is this. He goes, you could approve the things that are excellent. It takes spiritual discernment for us to see what God calls excellent, virtues in the culture, truths in his Bible, because our natural response is, some of those truths, I don't really like some of those truths. You know, deny yourself, take up your cross. You know, there's a number of truths that they preach good, but like, really? Like in real time and space to do that? But when we see those as excellent, that's a transformative time in our life, and it takes time, and it's not like in one day we see it all, but we're on this trajectory of seeing what God calls excellent. We are calling it excellent, but it takes time. There are many things I believe that God calls excellent. The church is not yet embraced. They're going, uh, you know, we're not going to argue against that. We're just not going to talk about it. And the Lord says, I actually want you to rejoice in it as excellent. Various truths, but not just truths, it's the way that he looks at people. David again, now we're in Psalm 16. A minute ago, we were in Psalm 18. King David, this is is a very important insight on David's greatness right here. He said, as for the saints, Psalm 16, verse 3, that are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now, the key phrase is the saints that are on the earth. (laughs) The saints up there, hey, no problem. We're going to have a great time in the resurrection. It's the on earth saints. That's a great verse. As long as it's just a poster. It's a poster, a little sunset, you know, the excellent ones of the earth. I have taught the life of David, I don't know, five or ten times. I mean, right through 1 and 2 Samuel. They were some, not that, some guys I wouldn't want to hang out with in David's inner circle. It's like, ugh. Who David, because again, I don't know the life of David perfectly, but I'm pretty familiar with it. I go, who exactly are you talking about? I'm looking through, hmm. I mean, Abigail did pretty good. Let me see. No, 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 his kids. No, that one, no, that wife, no, ooh. David, who are you talking about? <laughs> no, that, that's a major thing. And David was intentional. He's saying, I didn't say they were perfect. I said, I'm viewing them through God's lens. I'm doing it on purpose. This is what one of the things that constituted David's greatness. Is that he cultivated this mindset. This is not automatic. This is like, ugh, no, wait, wait. God your gentleness towards me, that's Psalm 18, now we're in Psalm 16, I'm gonna turn it back on them. And one of the remarkable things about David is that how he gave grace time and time again. Sometimes he didn't. Sometimes he stepped over the line. He didn't say he was perfect, but he says, as a mindset, I'm esteeming the excellent budding virtues in their life. I see the other ones, but I am going with the narrative that before you there's excellence. 
And that's my story about them. That is a major, I mean, that's a very important insight into David's greatness right there. Well, we're going to approve the things that are excellent. I think the church, and I, I'm saying this in a, in a nice way. It sounds mean, a little mean. We got a ways to go on this, but the Lord's leading his church worldwide into agreeing with what he calls excellent. The first area of which I've already mentioned is that God's people, his narrative towards them is he sees even the yes in their spirit as, as excellence. It's not maturity, but he values it. So he wants us to view the saints in the body of Christ and the church down the road and that guy that puts you down on social media he that's a believer. He wants us to see excellence, not perfection. We don't agree with everything they do, but we see their value and we see how God sees them in the big picture. And I tell you, and, and most of you know, I mean, you've been doing this for a while, many of you, it takes an intentionality to do this. This is a dogged tenacity to sign back up to approve what God calls excellent. This is not an automatic thing. Again, the lady, they don't really love in that other church. You go, whoa, that, that's amazing when people love. I mean, we're talking about the real love of people who don't like you and agree with you. Loving them is what we're talking about that are believers. Well, we don't just love, we don't just call excellent God's people, look through the lens of grace, his virtues, his truths. Again, I mentioned in the cultural wars, the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of sex, the authority of the word of God, the one way of salvation of Jesus, and a number of other issues that even in the church, there's debate and there's wars that are emerging against these excellent things. Paragraph two, his commandments are excellent. That's what Paul said in Romans seven. He goes, your commandments are good. They're really good. They liberate humans. Well, that was an archaic command, and this is modern day, and I don't know if we really like that one. One group of scholars say, and we go, no, God's word is excellent. That's where we take our stand. Studies tell us, you've all read them, that today many people define love and truth, justice, by what they feel is right, not by the word of God. They go, well, that feels like justice or injustice, so it is. And the Holy Spirit would say, no, you've got the word of God is the plumb line. The word of God didn't agree with what you're feeling right now. You need to change what you're feeling and thinking and line up with the word. And I have good news for you. God is raising up millions, hundreds of millions of believers that are committed to align with the word. I mean, there's millions right now. There's going to be a revival of honoring the word of God and putting our feelings and the cultural debates secondary to the word of God. I'm positive. It's, it's emerging now. Well, the debates are emerging too. We're, two trends are happening simultaneously. There's growing darkness and there's growing light and glory in the church and glowing darkness in the church. Both of them are moving at a pretty fast pace right now. So we choose you this day who, where you're at and we are, we believe the word of God even if our minds don't fully grasp it, we call it excellent. Paragraph I, that you would be sincere. This is a prayer to walk out our sincere intentions to obey. And sincere intentions are real. Obedience doesn't start off mature. Obedience always starts as a sincere intention. And 
most of the time we stumble in that intention for a while and then we catch up with it, then we stumble in it less and then we get that walked out in a consistent way. But the sincere intention is still a spirit of obedience. God values it. The devil just tells you you're a hopeless hypocrite and, and you're, you know, you're a loser because your sincerity doesn't really matter to God. The sincere intention to obey him. You know, the guy is saying, I am against this. I'm going for that. And the Lord says, yeah, I see that. I value that. The devil says, no, you're just a hypocrite. Give up and give in. Paragraph J, we pray for grace that we would live without offense. Now, this isn't talking about us being offended at people, although that's a biblical truth. That's a very powerful one. That's not this passage. It's about us not doing things out of the will of God that offend other people. But I have a few verses there. Verse First uh, uh, Corinthians ten, Paul says, "When you eat or drink, you got a believer who's confused about the issues. Don't strut in your liberty and eat and drink certain things you have liberty to do." But they go, "Oh no!" and it confuses them, and they don't know what to do. And Paul says, "Just don't eat, drink it. Just serve your brother." Yeah, but. The brother's got mixed up doctrines. The Lord said, no, but just don't offend him. Don't injure his heart. Just be patient with him. It's worth it to, to uphold him. So that's what the, the, the issue of offense is about here. We're, we're not saying things about people that trap them or trick them or hurt them. I, I mean, we're true to the word of God, so people might be offended at that, but that's a different thing when it's the word of God, but any way that we can avoid injuring someone with our words, whispering about them, telling something about them, taking something from them, blocking their goals, that we don't have to. It's not, it's not the will of God that we do it. The Lord says, back away and do nothing that causes offense to other weak and broken people. Again, I say it over and over. When we're obeying the word, it causes offense. That's a different category. Paragraph three. He says, we're coming to the end of the passage here. And then I'll just give you a few uh, ideas which I've covered just about the, having the divine narrative, which is critical to this whole reality of abounding in love. But we're filled with the fruits of righteousness. The f- being filled with the fruits of righteousness starts by receiving the free gift of righteousness from Jesus, his work on the cross. But when we receive the free gift of righteousness at the new birth, that sets us in a new beginning, sets us in a position where we can relate to God as our father now, not just as the creator and judge, but he is now our father. We're in his family. Wow, it's a free gift. This is fantastic. Happens in a moment, the day we're born again. But then we start that lifestyle of righteousness. Now, simply put, I'm gonna, you know, not be super accurate with the words here. But I want you to get it, being filled with the righteousness. Some people, they only see righteousness as moral virtues, righteous choices in behavior. It, it certainly includes that for sure. But I want to say being right, filled with righteousness is having rightness, right views, right choices, right views of God, right views of people, right views of uh, of of issues in the culture. It's having, it's having rightness. We're filled with going in the right way. And yes, it certainly has to do with 
moral virtues in terms of certain behavior patterns. But righteousness is bigger than that. It's being, it's thinking and talking right. I just wanted to simplify it that way. And we're filled with the fruits of righteousness. There's many areas about our money, our words, our sexuality, our time, the way we view others, the way we view ourselves. Righteousness actually has something to do with, do you view yourself in agreement with how God views you? That's part of being of thinking right. A lot of folks are living under condemnation and they're living with this kind of orphan spirit of, of you know, just rejection and it's very normal. I'm not, I'm not putting that down saying, oh, you're horrible if you do that. That's extremely human. Billions of people think that way. But the Lord says, I want you to be filled with right thoughts, even about yourself, about my word, about my son, about your money, about activities, about what you eat and drink, about people, about their failures, about their weaknesses. Have right views about them that line up with mine. So righteousness is a big subject is the point I'm saying. Then I love this little phrase that he says, and we're filled with the fruits of righteousness by Jesus Christ. Well, it's obviously his work on the cross. The whole thing begins by receiving the gift of righteousness. But it's the ongoing interaction with him called abiding in him. It's that developing that conversation through the day where we're talking to him and he's impressing and inspiring our hearts little by little. <clears throat> Paragraph one, Paul connects abounding love with a lifestyle of righteousness, of righteous choices as well in our behavior. He says, if you love me, You'll obey my word. Obeying God's word. Some folks think if I cry at a worship service and I feel sentimental, which I love feeling sentimental and crying at a worship service, that's beautiful. But that's the essence of worship. And after that, you know, boys will be boys. And hey, next time we have a worship service, man, I'm going for it. And the Lord says, no, I, I want a holistic view. I want you to, the theater of which you demonstrate your love for me is when you choose obedience when your being and your opportunity wants something else. You choose obedience. You're, you're demonstrating love. That's the theater of which your love is expressed to me. Like your body, your career, your reputation wants A. God says do B. And you're going, ah. we choose B. He goes, you are loving me. Paragraph two. I'm talking again on the subject of righteousness here. One of the primary lies that's promoted today is that God's commandments are burdensome. You know, they say, well, in the grace of God, those commandments, I mean, that going hard for God, like, gee whiz, I mean, what about just resting and coasting? And there's four or five definitions of rest that are in the conversation of the body of Christ, and two or three of them are not biblical. The term rest is, but the definitions that are being used in I see conversations, I go, that's not a biblical definition of rest, this is. I don't want to get into that right now, but my point is that some folks think anything that cuts against the current of our desire, and it's a little bit, takes some effort, and I don't want to, and I don't feel like it, and if it's grace, I shouldn't do what I don't feel like doing. And there's a distorted grace message that's saying that God's commandments, they're just burdensome. 
They're out of reach, and we're losing out on real life by trying to do this intense Christianity thing. And these claims, these, this false teaching, and again, I'm not breaking it all down. I just, I just I want to say it here and there. They say, well, we receive grace, so that deep hunger for righteousness, if you go that path, you're just going to be a religious, proud person and legalistic. You're going to be in bondage to religious ways. Get free of that. And I have, I want to say, as you know, gloriously, the word of God liberates us and hunger and going deep in obedience and self-sacrificing love and denying our flesh to pursue him. That's the way to liberty and for a heart that's free. And then Paul ends it, he says, and all this is to the glory of God. He goes, when human beings go through this process, that verse 9, 10, and 11, he goes, God is glorified. You know, they're on the earth in a dark world. There are bright and shining lamps. They're not perfect, but they're abounding in love in those three ways. They're doing it by growing in knowledge of God. They're, they're putting effort in. They're seeking to discern the things that are excellent. And they're walking, trying to walk out godly sincerity. They're compromised. I mean, uh, uh, to resist compromise, they're trying to walk it out and not cause offense and not be harmful or hurtful or put down, put down other people in any way, trying to love them. Being filled with right thinking, right choices. And all this is because of Jesus' glory and interacting with him. And the Father goes, I am glorified when you go in that way and stay with it, even to the day of Christ, to the day you meet the Lord. Well, let's look just for a few moments. We've covered some of this material in the last few months. But it, it's more than academic material. This is absolute core to abounding in love. This, to me, is one of the core issues of abounding in love. This is the big stumbling block here. It's very practical, but most challenging, and in many ways, the one easiest to neglect, the way we view people. I mean, we can embrace righteous ethics, say, okay, I'm not great at them, but I agree with them. But other believers and other ministries, and they have different political views, they got different doctrines, and they love Jesus, but there's still some confusion. But that's, in everyone, there's things that are out of whack. And the Lord says, no, I really want you to see and say what I see and say about them. Mm. Yeah, but... I want people to know that I know more than they know. And I want people to know that I'm not afraid to call them out. And the Lord says, no, I'm not calling them out. That's not what I'm doing right now. I'm trying to win them. So we go back to, and we're going to be ever so brief on this. Zechariah chapter 3. And I started sharing this this summer related to Isaiah 19, and I'm not going to go into that right now, but a few of you are tracking with what I meant. I'm really stirred up by Zechariah 3, and I made the point earlier in the summer that in Zechariah 3, this passage, the Lord has highlighted it in our prophetic history in the last near 40 years, more than any other passage of the Bible, Zechariah 3. Dreams, supernatural spiritual confirmations, Zechariah 3 and 4 will be very important I remember in the 80s and 90s going, okay, I believe you. And a number of leaders, and, and not leaders as well, but some of the leaders that I've talked to, have, the Lord has given them dreams, some of them a number of times, Zechariah 3 and 4. It's like, 
Why does this keep coming up? Well, it makes a whole lot more sense now because Zechariah 3 is about the collision of Satan's narrative towards one of God's leaders, Joshua, the high priest. I mean, he's the spiritual leader of the nation. And he's got failures and deficiencies in his life. And Satan has a storyline about him. But God has an opposite storyline. And the storyline's in a collision with each other. I didn't even figure that out for some years. I just thought, Zechariah 3, why is this important? Well, because the end time move of God, there's going to be a cultural betrayal in the church of offended believers who in that trajectory of backsliding. And on the other side, there's a explosion of people moving in mature love and that family dynamic in the great harvest. But again, it's not automatic. This is a day-by-day choice every believer makes. God's going to have a billion new believers coming to the kingdom into a mature family that's existing, that's calling them in. So I am very clear that God was going to succeed, but millions of believers are going the other direction. And now I, I, you could just summarize it just in the, in the snapshot right here in Zechariah 3. Again, verse 1, Joshua, the high priest, the top spiritual leader of the nation, he's standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan stands up and says, I got a case against him. The angel Lord says, really? He goes, yeah, he's messed up. And you can read the details on your own. And the Lord says, the Lord rebuke you. I got a different story about him. Yeah, I know that he's messed up. His clothes were really dirty. But I have cleansed him. And I have commissioned him. And my storyline is the one that we're going with. Paragraph B. This uniqueness of David, I mean, his life, the way he viewed God and viewed himself and viewed people. Again, he had his failures, but he had this unique ability to see God's heart for himself and to see God's heart for others. Well, it started when he was about 17 years old, when the prophet Samuel knocks on his father's house. There's eight brothers. David's the youngest brother. He's the teenager, and the other one's a little bit older. And the prophet says... We know the story. One of your sons is going to be anointed. Bring them all. So the father, Jesse, brought seven of the eight sons. Young David, the young one, he was out tending the sheep, and he was within view, within sight of the family. The family's having the meal with the most famous man in Israel, the prophet, and David's dad and seven brothers have him taking care of sheep, mowing the lawn while the greatest prophet in Israel is 100 yards away in their house eating dinner. So the prophet's gonna, looks at the first brother and says, wow, you're an accomplished warrior military and he's gonna anoint him. The Lord says, no. The Lord says, no, look at him. He's, you know, big and strong and handsome and brilliant and I'm making up a few of those, but he's clearly the one. The Lord says, no. And he's gonna saw the prophet Samuel goes, Oh, yeah, we'll go to the second one. Can we anoint him? The Lord goes, No. Third one, no. The fourth one, no. The fifth one, no. All seven. And the prophet goes, I don't get it. And then God thunders this statement. Look at this in paragraph B. This is profound. God does not evaluate like man does according to the flesh. God doesn't look at the outward accomplishments, their gifting, their many things. He's got another way of viewing people. And Samuel's going, oh, 
Okay, well, there isn't any other children. And Jesse goes, there he is. He was within view, down the valley. I'm just guessing 100 yards or two. Hey, David, come on up here. David comes running up, you know, red, rosy cheeks, and hi, wow, Samuel. The Lord says, that's the one. Like, he hadn't accomplished anything. I mean, he doesn't have any resume at all. The Lord says, yeah, but I see his heart. I see what he does, what he says to me at night alone, singing to me at night when he's 12 and 14 and he's 18 years old. I see his future. I've got a call for him. Yeah, I can see failures, but I see like man doesn't see. So paragraph C, I use two terms, and I, I use this several terms, some interchangeably. The secular narrative of a person's life, what they look like to other people. By the natural eye, it takes no revelation. You look at them, you see facts about their life. They have five, or, I'm making up five or ten, five or ten accomplishments in 50 years that are pretty cool. They built a big business, had a big ministry, had a nice family, had some good friends, you know, Worked out a little bit, you know, there, there you have it. Accomplished a few things, won a few trophies. Well, there's 50 years, five or 10 failures. Well, there's five or 10 deficiencies in their personality. They're a little this, they're a little that, and they lack some, people, some leadership skills. But, you know, he's the best man for the job. Let's hire him. That's the secular narrative. There's nothing wrong with that, but it doesn't take revelation to evaluate that. You can look by the eye and see. Well, he's got some failures, some weaknesses, got some strengths, got some a resume. Okay, we'll hire you. You're the guy. You win the award. Now, these facts matter. Skills and accomplishments and failures, deficiencies. But they're not the primary determining factor in God's narrative of your life. They do matter, but they're secondary. They're down a notch or two. The divine narrative. God looks at David. What? at you. He sees your call. He sees your future and you don't. David thought, I got a call? I thought I was a, sh a shepherd boy. No, no, you got a call. Like, what's my call? David didn't even really know it, but God knows it. He knows the future. David sees the sincere, God sees the sincere movements of his heart. God sees his accomplishments and his deficiencies and his failures, but God interprets them different than other people do. That's the key. God interprets them differently. Paul the Apostle came along and said, from now on, because we're enlightened, we don't regard, we don't evaluate anybody by their outward man like Samuel the prophet did to David's seven brothers. We don't evaluate anybody that way. From now on, we want the divine narrative on that guy or that woman, that boy or that girl. We want God's narrative. And you don't always have it, but you're searching for it. Yeah, well, they really blew it, or they're really gifted, or they really did this, or they really did that. The Lord says, my narrative is what matters. And tell Satan, the Lord rebuke you, because I got a different narrative for Joshua than you do. Top of page four. Just touch a couple of these points, and we'll pray. We want to ask the Holy Spirit, here's the prayer, to abound in love. Again, this is the practical core reality of abounding in love. 
I mean, it's glorious, this abounded revelation of how God loves us and abounded in love for, to Jesus. Okay, yes, we're in. But loving believers that don't like us or agree with us and they kind of grate us or they ignore us or they block our goals or they don't just not pick us, they stand in our way and they speak about us in a negative way. The Lord goes, ah, bound in love. It's gonna come to, can you see the divine narrative of their life? Oh, I don't want to. No, this is the key. This is the miracle issue right here. We're gonna see. Here's our prayer. And I pray this. I don't do it great, but I pray it. I pray it a lot, but I, I need to do it better. I wanna see what he say, sees when he looks at you. I wanna feel what he feels when he looks at you. And I want to say what he says when he looks at you. Now, my temp temptation is to look at you and not see what he sees, feel what he feels, and certainly not say what he says. That guy, oh, keep your eye on him, man. That guy's trouble, and he's just, whatever. He really thinks he's this. And he, the Lord says, I'm not saying any of that. Well, it's true. He does think that. The Lord says, that's maybe true, but that's not what I'm saying about him. That's not my story. I'm not saying it's not true. It's just not headline news. John Wimber, some of you know his name. By the way, a new biography have, have just came out a few, few weeks ago. It's fantastic by Connie Dawson. For those of you that know him, he greatly impacted my life and in the, in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And, but John Wimber used to say this to me all the time. One of the, in my opinion, one of the great leaders of the body of Christ in the last uh, generation he would talk about a ministry, but he, he, it would go beyond that. He says, a ministry runs by the headline stories that are emphasized in that ministry. And I said, no, what? He goes, a business is the same way. He goes, find the headline stories that God's behind and tell those stories often. Because a ministry runs by stories. I remember thinking, really? That doesn't sound right. I really believe it's not entire. I mean, there's, it's more to it than that. He goes, tell the stories over and over. And here she says, don't let the devil create the headlines in your family story. There will be negatives. There will be setbacks. There will be disappointments. There will be failures. There will be deficiencies. Don't let those get into the headlines. Every ministry, every family, every person has five or ten main headline stories that God wants your life to be known by those stories. Those are the headline stories. They're not all, it's not a bio of all the facts and figures of everything you did. God's narrative is not the facts of your bio. Well, you know, in high school, I went here and I accomplished that and I invested it here and I started this business and I went to this ministry, I went to that ministry, then here. Those are important part of our, of our story in one sense, but the headline news is the story God is saying about you when he's praying for you and when he looks at you. He sees the negative, but he's got a narrative, and he wants that narrative in the mouth of his believers for one another. Paragraph G, God's narrative isn't the detailed bio. It's the main headlines. Satan wants your life story to be centered on facts, particularly negative facts. He wants to find the business that failed or the relationship that failed or the thing you did or the person that you offended. He wants, he wants your storyline going along facts in your bio. And God says, no, I want it 
to be the headline news that I'm talking about. Now, I'm not just talking to you about you saying, oh, phew, that's good news. I, I am. I, I would love for you to go, wow, that's good news. But I'm really talking to you about how you view the person by you. Because this is how the John 17 family is going to move forward. I tell the story here about the lady. I told this a few months ago. She, some years ago, she came to me. She goes, I, she's talking about this ministry leader. She goes, he, A, B, and C. I go, number one, you shouldn't be telling me. Why are you telling me? Well, I just feel like you need to know. What well, are you telling him? You need to go tell him and try to win him to change. She goes, no, I just, I just tell the truth. And I said, really? She goes, yeah, I'm just into the truth. I go, let me have you consider this. 95% of the truth of that man's story isn't that. 95% of his life in the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years is the time he laid on his bed and said, God, I want to obey you. The time where he tried to help that one person, where he made choices to be helpful, where he read the word of God, thousands of hours over 40 years, 20 years, whatever. That's his story. You've only got 5% of his story and you think it's the truth. So the negative facts to her were the truth. The 95% of the positive was not part of the truth. I go, tell me the 95%. I'll give you two hours. Then I'll give you five minutes for the last 5%. I want to hear the truth. She goes, ah. I go, oh, and before you give me the two hours of, his, of how he sought God and for years and all the times he repented. Of course, we don't really know those details, but I knew she, you know, she got the message. I said, but before we, since you so are committed to the truth, before you tell me the 95% for a couple hours, before you tell me the 5% the negative, first tell me the 5% negative about you because you love truth. Tell it to me. I want to hear the bad stuff about you. You love truth, right? You, this isn't right. <laughs> I go, no. This is the point I'm making. The truth about that guy is much bigger than his failures and deficiencies. That's the narrative. Well, let's look at paragraph I, and we'll just end with that. When God tells the story, I love this. And I got this from John Wimber, by the way, the man I just talked about. Paragraph, he said this a number of times. I loved it all the time. When God, to Paul the Apostle, Paul the Apostle is 2,000 years after Abraham, and he, Paul is, lives 1,000 years after David, because Abraham was 2,000 B.C., David was 1,000 B.C., God says, 2,000 years later, let me tell you the headline news about Abraham. He didn't waver. Well, Paul, did you really read Genesis? He did waver. And God says, no. That, I mean, yes, he did waver, but the headline news, my story is, through the lens of grace, is he didn't. I love what Wimber always says. this. He goes, in my house, that was wavering. <laughs> anyway, he said that every time, and I died laughing. Abraham wavered a handful of times. The point is, the God headline of his life, he didn't waver. And that was the truth. It's in the word of God. Yeah, but we got some wavering back there. But that was only written after his death. It's written 500 years later by Moses. Wow. God says, I know how to relate to my people by grace. Then David, Paul lives a thousand years after David. David had some pretty big mess ups. 
And Paul says a thousand years later, here's God's narrative. David, Acts 13, verse 22, did all the will of God. I went, Paul, did you read First and Second Samuel? You need to take my class on the life of David. He had a couple major mess-ups. And Paul says, thus says the Lord. He's a man after God's own heart. He did all of God's will. Wow. Is this how this works? It doesn't mean they didn't really do those things, but God says there's a narrative that's bigger than the bio. And the end-time church in John 17 that's abounding in love <coughs> has to anchor into it for themselves so they cast off their own spirit of condemnation and rejection, and they got to do it to others so they cast off a spirit of judgment towards the believers that don't necessarily like them or like what they like. Well, amen and amen. Let's just end with that. Let's stand before the Lord. Father, we love you. We love your leadership, Jesus. Nobody would do it this way besides you. Lord, I have hope for the end time church because you say, Satan, I rebuke you. That's not the story of Joshua. There's a different story I'm telling. Lord, we want to see what you see, feel what you feel, and say what you say about our brothers and sisters. Beloved, every one of us, we got family members. We got churches back home. We got ministries on the other end of town, on the internet. And the Lord says, I want you to see what I see about them. Say what I'm saying, not what social media is saying. Don't take them on. Unless I'm really giving you a prophetic unction. And that's another, you know, for another time. But we want to say what he says. I'm committed in my heart, and I don't do this perfectly, but I go, Lord, I just want to say what you say about people. I don't want to say the other stuff. I don't even one sentence off of the divine narrative. I want to stick on the divine narrative. Father, all over this room, I'm asking you to wash us with this grace perspective, this abounding in love cry in our spirit. Let us see our parents, our brothers and sisters, our children, siblings. We're in the kingdom, but they've... Nah, let us see what you see and see what you say about them. Here we are, Lord. I want all of us. I mean, all of us. This is, again, counterintuitive to all of us. None of us do this by nature. We've all got five or ten people. We need to say what God says about them and not the other stuff. Come again to repent that I come short of this. But I'm saying yes to you. I want to do this.
everybody, let's get around them. Just a little bit. You can be at arm's distance and be behind them. If you feel more comfortable doing it that way. We're here together as a family. And Jesus is present. His spirit is here. He's a healing God. Jehovah Rapha, he's the God that heals. In the name of Jesus. Lord, I say extend your hand to heal right now. physical ailment, that injury. Lord, I pray for Isaac and the surgery he had on his knee yesterday, his leg yesterday. I ask for healing right now. Pray for Eric. Pray for different ones in our midst that are right now, their bodies are hurting. In the name of Jesus, the fire of the Holy Spirit. Release your power right now. Jehovah Rapha, I am the Lord that healeth thee. Right now, in this room, and across this spiritual family, the people at home, listen to the internet that are sick in their body. Their family members are, I speak grace. In the name of Jesus, release healing power in Jesus' name. Release healing Now, fire, Lord. We rebuke the enemy's attack against bodies right now. that's touching human bodies right now. Take for anyone in our midst that is sick or injured right now, we ask for healing. We pray for Molly right now and her body that's suffering. But the glory of God head to toe touch her. Tomorrow. 